We're here on Bidjigal country and we'd like to acknowledge these are the lands of the First Nations people and acknowledge elders past and present and those emerging. Welcome to Bias 1301 podcast. Uh, today we will be talking with Kate Brandis uh, on biosignals for our podcast today. Um, Kate, would you mind introducing yourself and tell us what you do? Hi, thank you. Um, yes, I'm Kate Brandis and I'm in the Centre for Ecosystem Science in the Bees uh, School and I do a whole range of different things. Um, I work on water birds and wetlands and how we best manage water for those wetlands and water birds. Mm. But I also do work on wildlife forensics and the illegal wildlife trade. Oh, wow. That is, what is wildlife forensics? So for me, that means using tissues from animals or animals themselves to either work out what they've been eating or their movement or where they've come from, which is where that buys into the um, the illegal wildlife trade because we need to know whether animals have come from the wild or mm. been raised in captivity. Right, which is something very important in Australia because you have very strict rules around what animals, of course, can be brought in and what animals you can keep at, at your home, right? We do. Um, in Australia, and particularly overseas in Southeast Asia, mm. it's more around there are certain animals that you can trade if they've been bred in captivity. Mm. Um, but what people do is they falsify the paperwork. Oh. And so unless you've got a genetic history of your animal, there's mm-hmm. no way of telling whether, for example, you're selling a shingleback as a pet, whether you just went and picked it up from the national park or mm-hmm. whether you actually bred it in captivity. Now, why would that be a bad thing to just, if we can already keep, say, shinglebacks mm-hmm. in our homes, why can't we just take it from the outside? Well, there's a whole range of reasons. Um One, obviously, is taking animals from the wild reduces our biodiversity Mm -hmm. out there in the wild. Um, There's also issues around disease Mm. and introducing disease from wild animals to maybe you do have a a legal pet or Mm. other reptiles in your collection and you don't want to bring disease in. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's against the law. You're not allowed to take animals from the wild. Yeah, exactly. Um, All right, let's jump into our um, topic of today, which is biosignals and biosignatures. Could you tell me what is a biosignal? Okay. A biosignal, by definition, is any signal in living beings that can be measured or monitored. Mm -hmm. So this can be um, things such as your blood pressure, an ECG. Um, It can also be acoustic like vocal sounds? Vocal, yeah, mm. or chemical, um, so elements in the body or isotopes, which we'll talk about a bit later. Mm-hmm. So they're all those sorts of things that you can measure is a biosignal. Okay. And now what's a biosignature? Yeah, so the biosignature is the uniqueness of that signal to an individual. Okay. So, for example, let's say writing was your biosignal. Oh. But your handwriting, which is unique to you, is your biosignature. Oh, okay. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. So is a biosignature like a fingerprint? It's always going to be different for each individual? Not necessarily. Mm. So, for example, um, if you're measuring diet in an animal, mm-hmm. the diet of a whole group of animals mm-hmm. might be the same in one spot because they're all eating the same thing. Right, okay. But that group of animals, so we'll use birds, for example, mm-hmm. which I've worked on in wetlands. Mm-hmm. So 
at one wetland, they might all be eating locusts, for example. Mm-hmm. And so they have a signature that reflects their diet. Mm-hmm. Whereas at another wetland, say in Kakadu, mm-hmm. they might be eating fish. Right. But it's the same bird, same species of bird. Mm-hmm. So um, the signal would be the diet mm-hmm. and the isotopes in their diet, but the signature is then relative to where they ate their food. Okay. And why is it important to measure and differentiate biosignals, especially within a species? So going back to our chat on the illegal wildlife Mm -hmm. trade, um, we can tell where an animal has come from, not only whether it's come from the wild or in captivity, Mm -hmm. but geographically. So has it been taken from WA Mm -hmm. or has it been taken from South Australia or New South Wales? Wow. Um, So... It is important then to know those signatures because then you can target enforcement actions at Mm -hmm. those locations. Mm -hmm. If there's opportunities for putting those animals back Mm -hmm. where they came from, Mm -hmm. then you obviously want to know whether you've got to take your lizard to Western Australia or to New South Wales. So um, you can use it that way. Um, We also use it in tracking waterbird movements. Mm. Like migration? uh, so not for our water birds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Our Australian water birds tend not to migrate in a seasonal pattern. Oh, so okay. migration generally refers to a seasonal movement, mm-hmm. whereas our birds, particularly our inland water birds, mm-hmm. move in relation to flooding and resource availability. Mm, okay. So it's not so much a summer-winter north-south shift like in North America or something like mm-hmm. that. They'll move if there's a big flood somewhere. Oh, okay. And and why is that important to track? So what we did, we did a project called the Feather Map of Australia, mm-hmm. which is a citizen science program. And we asked people to collect water bird feathers from their wet, local wetlands all oh, over Australia yeah. and send them to me. Mm-hmm. And we measured the elemental composition. So the oh, biosignature. So we, right. the signal was the elements mm-hmm. and the signature was unique to where the feather was grown. Mm-hmm. Now, c- could I clarify, when you say elements, you mean elements that we know of in the periodic table? Exactly. Oh, yeah. wow. So thinking, yeah, periodic table. Yeah. And we can measure, depending on the device, 28, 30 different elements that are in that tissue. Wow. Because, mm. yeah, one of the things um, I was going to ask is you said, you know, you can track very specifically the area where an animal came from, from its diet. Um, I guess as a bit more naive uh, that I am in in this subject, I would think, well, you know, a fish is a fish, right? Mm. Wouldn't it have kind of a similar, you know, if you eat a salmon here, you eat a salmon here, wouldn't you have similar biosignatures? But you're actually looking down all the way to the elements, which, you know, even a few little elements could precisely pinpoint where that animal came from. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. That's correct. And some of it, we're trying to still work out what drives those differences in different locations. Mm -hmm. But my assumption is that some of it is geology-based. And so obviously we have different rocks in different places and they have different minerals and elements and that comes through the soil, which gets taken up by the plants, that the insects chew on the plants and the bird eats the insect and so it goes Mm. through the food web that way. Mm -hmm. Um, And obviously there are certain parts of the world and the country that are rich in, say uranium or lead or all sorts of things like that that Mm -hmm. then get reflected in the tissue. So um, to to clarify, the way that a lot of these elements are kind of integrated into the animal's body, is it through diet mostly? What other ways can they integrate these elements? 
It's predominantly through diet. Okay. So that old sort of adage, you are what you eat, is mm. absolutely true. Yeah. Um, for all living things. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, it's related to what they ate and where they ate it. Right. So eating, so, for example, pelicans. We've been doing a pelican diet study lately mm-hmm. looking at pelicans in the inland, Murray-Darling Basin, and pelicans on the coast. Mm-hmm. They're both eating fish. Yeah. But we're getting different signals signatures for mm-hmm. those showing those that feed on fish from the inland, so freshwater fish mm-hmm. versus marine fish. Oh, wow. Mm. And so when it comes to, so let's say you have the biosignature for the animal. How do you then work backwards to see where it came from? Do you have, you know, maps of mm-hmm. like a heat map of where the different elements are? Like how do you work your your, your way backwards? So what we did is we had a whole suite of different water bird species mm-hmm. and to create that base map, exactly as you're talking about, mm-hmm. so what does a particular location look like in terms of its elemental profile, Yeah, we used species that didn't move very much. Oh, okay. So we used lo- what we called local or resident species mm-hmm. and we took the data from their samples and said, okay, this site looks like this. Mm-hmm. And then we took the species that move long distances, mm-hmm. for example, say a pelican, and someone collects the feather, <coughs> excuse me, sends it in, and we scan it, and we go, actually, it was collected at point B, mm-hmm. but it matches point A. Right. Therefore, it has been to point A at some point mm-hmm. and grown its feather, and yeah. then it's flown all the way over to point B, and that's where we found the feather. So we can get movement that way. That's incredible. Mm. Now, specifically on the feathers. So I have worked with a few ornithologists who collect, um, I mean, I guess I'm not sure if it's biosignatures. I don't really know what that meant back then. Um, But some of them say that, uh, or at least some ornithologists couldn't use all feathers because there wasn't enough kind of blood on the tip of that feather. Can you use any feathers or do you also look for these specific feathers that actually have, you know, some sort of, I guess, DNA on it? No, we can use any feathers. Wow. Provide, well, having said that, not the little tiny downy ones. So oh, why not? They're too small. Oh, I see. And we need a, so the way <clears throat> we measure the feathers for elements using um, X-ray fluorescence instruments. X-ray fluorescence. Mm. Oh, wow. Okay. So it shoots a beam of X-rays, mm-hmm. exactly as you would expect from the title, into the sample, mm-hmm. and it measures what shoots back at the machine in terms of reflected values. Oh. And it works on energy. And so it goes, okay, well, we know that this energy is this element. And Mm -hmm. so it tells you how much of that element there is and that sort of thing in a very simplified description of how it works. So did you have a fairly strong chemistry background then to do what you have to do? Because I I assume it's like got to do with electrons bouncing around and, you know, that's kind of what's happening. It does. But that's the level of my knowledge is it's electrons bouncing around. No, I don't have a chemistry background and it's been a pretty steep learning curve. Right. Um, No, my background's biology and ecology. So, but this um, instrumentation and technology is actually developed for geology. Oh. Yeah. On, for rocks? For rocks and identifying gold or any sort of mineral that they wanted to dig out of the ground. Right. They use it for rocks. So transferring this technology to biological samples mm-hmm. is is new and it's right. still something we're working out. 
Okay. And um, when it comes to, you know, in your case, birds, can you use any other body parts other than, than feathers, like maybe blood, saliva, anything like that? So for the work I'm doing with XRF, mm-hmm. not really. Um, bloods and saliva, those sorts of samples are not great. Why? Um because the device was developed for geology, mm. it assumes you've got a solid sample gotcha. of a okay. certain thickness and density. Yeah. So ideally you want something that's a couple of centimetres thick mm. or with feathers what we do is we put a, a, a backing of silica on over the top of the sample when mm-hmm. we scan it so that we know that um, exactly what we're scanning and it's not bouncing off all over the place. Right. Um, but normally we need a fairly solid sample to scan. Hmm. The other thing is um, different body parts or different tissue types, Mm -hmm. so blood or muscle or feathers, Mm -hmm. record diet at a different time scale. Oh. So a feather is a record of diet while the feather was growing, Mm -hmm. so that might be about a week, Mm -hmm. but then they keep the feather for a year, if not more, depending on their molt patterns. Oh, and it'll still hold that biosignature. Yeah, so once it's grown, it's chemically inert. It doesn't change. Wow. Yeah, so it's it's um, yeah, it's a timestamp of when they grew that feather and the diet they ate. Mm -hmm. Um, So technically, the biosignatures can change within the individual if, say, they switch their diet or the you know what they're eating say, starts absorbing more elements or anything like that. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. And particularly in um, tissues such as hair or Mm -hmm. fur or hair mainly because it just keeps growing and growing and growing, Mm. whereas fur gets to a certain length. But you can – there have been studies looking at human hair where they sample different sections of the hair Mm -hmm. and they can look at how people's diets have changed or there's actually a really good one. Um, They were looking at – oxygen, hydrogen isotopes, which mm-hmm. are you take in obviously through the water you drink. Right. And they looked at people who had travelled around the world and the changes in their hair based on their different water sources. Oh, wow. Mm. Have you ever been curious to kind of put your own hair in the x-ray <laughs> machine? <laughs> For the instrument we use, it's too small a sample. Oh, I see. Yeah, so... Um, the original work I did used a massive big lab-based machine called mm. an iTrax, and it scans the sample, um, but it takes hours and hours to do samples. We've now switched to a portable X-ray machine. Wow! And it's like it looks like a scanning gun, basically. Yeah. And you put it on your sample, and you scan for sixty seconds. Mm-hmm. So when we scan live animals, we just do sixty seconds. Wow! And um, it gets the data then, but it scans in a circle pattern mm-hmm. um, that's about eight millimetres across. Okay. So you need a sample that can cover that full area. So a single hair obviously is too fine too scale small, for that. Yeah. yeah. Now, in terms of safety, right, you're saying you can use a portable x-ray. Is that safe for you to use? Because, you know, I'm thinking when I go into an x-ray, they put, you know, the huge vest on me and then the tech runs away before they press the button, you know. How about you? Like, do you have to take precautions when you use that device? Yeah, we do. Um, it's a very low dose of x-ray mm. that is from these. It's not like when you have a bone x-ray or it's more akin to a dental x-ray. It's a very low mm. level. But um, obviously with radiation, it's a cumulative effect. Right. Um, and as a user of the device, we have to be careful. Mm-hmm. Um, but we have 
um, some lead-lined gloves that mm -hmm. we use if we have to hold the animal still. We cover our hands with it. If you're more than 30 centimetres away from the device, then the risk drops off significantly. Okay. Um, and in terms of the animal safety, we only ever scan the animal once. Mm. Mm -hmm. So it only gets one small dose yeah. and we don't rescan them after that. Right. I mean, humans, like you said, the dental x-rays, I'm pretty sure I've had like you know, at least five in my life because I've had braces. So, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah, I guess one is completely, you know, insignificant, I guess, to, to the changes for the animal. For the animal, yeah. yes. And we've been working on this project with Taronga Zoo mm. um, and we scanned all their animals in their collections and their education facility and things like that. And that was a couple of years ago now mm -hmm. and there's been no reports of any adverse effects from right. that um, from that single scan. So, and we've done dosage testing and things like that. So we're relatively mm -hmm. confident that it's a very low dose that's not having any impact, lasting Excellent. impact on them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I wanted to ask a question that, you know, and it's okay if you don't have the answer to this, but just in terms of like you are what you eat and the kind of accumulation of all these elements, do you eat sushi? I do. Do you have you heard that like you know eating too much tuna sushi specifically can kind of lead to accumulation of mercury in the body? I haven't heard that specifically with sushi, but mm. yes, bioaccumulation is a thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Like, can we not get rid of these elements? Yeah, I think it's around our. <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's around the abilities, the body's ability to excrete those elements. Mm -hmm. Um, and they build up in cells and you end up with higher levels and particularly heavy metals and things like that bioaccumulate in tissue. Wow. So, yes, it is a thing. Whether it's in the tuna in your sushi, <laughs> I can't say. Fair enough, yeah. Mm. I mean, you never know. It could just be a myth that, that's, you know, an old wives' tale sort of idea that's kind yeah. of been passed down. Yeah. yeah. Very fair. That's okay. I still eat sushi yeah. as well. Oh, I'm vegetarian, so it doesn't oh. worry me. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Um, what is the importance of your work? What is kind of, you know, the big picture of your research? So the biggest impact to date has been in the illegal wildlife trade. Mm. So we've been working, as I said, with Taronga. We had a project for a number of years where we were developing models mm -hmm. to determine whether an animal had been taken from the wild mm -hmm. or captive bred. Okay. Um, and so that involved us scanning a whole stack of lizards that were in captivity so that we knew what their signature looked like. Mm -hmm. What does a captive shingleback look like in terms of its elements? Right. And then we did a whole stack of field work and measured wild shinglebacks mm. from Western Australia and Victoria and South Australia to get signatures of what does a wild shingleback look like. Mm -hmm. And then towards the end of last year, we worked with Border Force and they were... Um, intercepting parcels that had shinglebacks in them <gasps> oh that my were gosh. destined for Hong Kong. Yeah. Oh, no. So we were able to then test our models and mm -hmm. we would go and scan the animals that they'd take out of socks and boxes and all sorts of things. And we could say to them, we're 80% confident that this animal has come from the wild or we're 50%, no, um, 50% we, we don't make a mm -hmm. judgment, but we can say whether the animal has been taken from the wild or has been bred in captivity, which would mean mm. that it might have been legally bred, mm. but it still shouldn't be posted like that. But yeah. So in terms of their evidence gathering, it can contribute to that. So 
Oh, I guess maybe I, I don't. I'm not familiar with the rules of of Australian, but I didn't realize we you could take native animals out of Australia, even captive bred. Uh, it depends on the licensing and the I see and the species, and it comes under the CITES convention mm. for trading animals. So there's a whole stack of different rules, and it really does depend on what the animal is, right? Um, and where it's going, because obviously we do transfer animals to other zoos mm. and oh, things right, overseas, yeah. but. Posting lizards in the mail to other countries is definitely yeah. illegal. A hundred percent, yeah. Um, what about the water bird study that you referred to? Yeah, so um, that's been really interesting in that we've now got a better understanding of how far our water birds move around the country. And mm-hmm. we had pelicans from Western Australia turn up in the eastern states and birds go all over the place. Um, But the other part of my work is um, working with governments and managing water for the environment. Oh. So Murray-Darling Basin is our um, most heavily impacted basin in Australia in terms of dams on rivers. Mm -hmm. And a portion of that dam is set aside for the environment. Okay. So think of a dam as a big bucket and... Mm -hmm. um, some of it is for the environment. Some mm-hmm. of it might be for farmers and irrigators. Mm. Some of it might be for town water supplies mm-hmm. and things like that. Right. And so that water for the environment section gets managed mm-hmm. and people need to, and people decide, water managers decide when to deliver that water, mm-hmm. how much water to deliver mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And so my work with the water birds is around informing governments about how to deliver that water for water bird outcomes. Oh, what does that mean? What do you mean water bird outcomes? So when they deliver environmental water, they have to identify which part of the environment they're targeting. Mm. And so it could be uh, we're going to put water down the river and keep it in the channel to um, help fish spawn. Okay. Or we're going to put down a really big flow and it's going to go over the bank of the channels Mm -hmm. and that's to water the um, vegetation Mm, that's on the floodplain. Yeah. Or in my case, what happens is in a really big flood that's normally generated by rainfall, so like we've had over the last two years, three years with La Nina, big Mm -hmm. flooding, the waterbirds breed in the wetlands, Mm. but quite often um, the flooding recedes too soon. Mm Mm-hmm. And so they will add more water to the flood from the environmental water. Wow. Okay. So it gets quite complex, um, but the water birds are very finicky and they like things a certain way. And (laughs) we need to use that water to make sure that the flood is there long enough for them to raise their chicks. Oh, okay. Because if the water levels drop, Mm -hmm. then the um, foxes and pigs (gasps) get in and it's not great. Yeah. Oh, no. Mm. So that's especially important when it comes to, you know, the Australian seasons, which is dry and wet. And then sometimes we get very dry for very long periods of time. And is that when the government can step in? Um, it can be, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, typically for water bird responses, yeah. it only happens in conjunction with a big flood. Okay. Because the water birds, as I said, are very fussy mm-hmm. and they like lots of water. Okay. And there's not enough in the bucket that's for in the environment right. to just be for water birds. So do the birds just not breed that year then if it's too dry? Correct. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I guess animals are, are pretty smart mm. when it comes to their yeah. own, you know, uh, evolution and yeah. 
um, life history. Oh, wow, that's that's really fascinating. And um, do you mind saying which birds in particular that you study? Yeah, so I work with ibis. Mm, really? <clears throat> oh, wow, so is a lot of your fieldwork in botanical gardens? <laughs> <laughs> that would be easy, no. So Australia has three species of ibis. Really? Yeah, so there's the Australian white ibis. Yeah. Is that the one we're very familiar with? We're very familiar with, yep. Around campus, in Mm. the gardens, in the cities. Um, There's the straw-necked ibis. Oh. Same size, but it has black wings and a black head. And a straw-neck. Yeah, they get (laughs) – yeah, they do. They get little straw things on their chins. Oh. Yep. And then there's a glossy ibis, Mm -hmm. which is a bit smaller um, and a beautiful iridescent browny-green colour. Oh, wow. And you work on all three? Uh, they tend to nest all together, mm. um, but primarily straw-necked ibis. Okay. So when the um, wetlands do flood, mm-hmm. so I work on the inland wetlands, so as you say, they go through periods of wet and then dry. Mm-hmm. When they do flood, um, the birds come in hundreds of thousands into massive big rookeries. Oh, that must be gorgeous. So I monitor how successful their breeding is yeah. and what's happening in terms of water in the rookery areas to tell the water managers whether we need more water or, or mm. not, that sort of thing. Wow, that's mm. really, really fascinating. Mm. You must do a lot of field work. When it's in flood, yes. Yes. <laughs> so, so the last couple of last three years, yes, a lot of field work. Mm-hmm. This Christmas just gone is the first time in three years I've not been doing field work. Oh, so, do you miss it? No, not, <laughs> not over the Christmas. Yeah, it's, of course. It's absolutely intense because every rookery we monitor every two weeks. Mm. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's a, for three-month period. Yeah. So it's fairly intense. So once the birds start, we need to get a field team together that can commit to going out every two weeks. So you sort of go out, you have four days in the field, you come home for a week, you go out again, and so it's – pretty full on. Yeah. And the last couple of years have been absolutely crazy because we've had 12 different colonies through the basin that we had to monitor. So I had teams going all over the place. It was just crazy. So to have this Christmas off was nice. Yeah. (laughs) You must um, have, like, you have to actually be in the marsh, in the the wetland, right? Do you have waders that you wear? Or do you just go full in? You're like, whatever, I'm wearing field gear. Let's swim in the marsh. Yeah, a bit of both. So... It's summer when we do our field work because the birds oh. tend to breed spring, summer yeah. in the inland. So it's stinking hot a lot of the time. <sighs> so getting wet is not a problem. Yeah. Personally, I don't wear waders. I don't like them. They're too cumbersome to walk around in because we are, in, like we do, we go into the into the colony in a canoe. Yeah. And then one person gets out and walks around. Wow. I just wear a wetsuit. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah, of course. Mm. Oh my goodness! Yeah. yeah, I um I used to do herpetology, so I worked uh-huh. a lot on frogs. Yep, and uh, I would wear waders, but it was like every single waiter had a had a hole, hole in, in it. it. <laughs> every single one, even if you buy it new, for some reason <laughs> there was right. a hole in it. Guaranteed, and you like it would be dangerous because you're like I am drowning yep. in this piece of clothing that is supposed to keep me dry. Oh my gosh, yes, I'm very familiar. That's why I just wear wetsuit. Fair enough, (laughs) fair enough. Kate, thank you so much for being on this podcast. This is a really fascinating talk. Now, 
A lot of our students are, you know, m- perhaps budding ecologists or want to dip their feet in, you know, yes. <laughs> no pun intended, <laughs> um, into ecology. Do you have any advice for students who might want to pursue ecology or might even want to pursue research or any sort of kind of, you know, conservation biology? Let's put mm. a big umbrella over All it. Right. Um, I guess the advice I would have, and based on my background, sort mm-hmm. of how I got to where I am, is... Um, volunteer. Yep. So I think I did like Water Watch and all sorts of little community environment things and then built networks from that and opportunities and experience so that when you got your CV, you can say, well, I've done this and this and this. And mm-hmm. and so I think you definitely need to step outside the courses of your degree and become involved in other programs that are going on that you're interested in. Mm-hmm. Um, and that certainly when you apply for a job and I see applicants applying for a job that tells me that they're actually really interested in what it is that they want to work in rather than it just being a job because a lot of ecologists, um, scientists in particular, are very passionate about the areas and it is more than just a nine-to-five job. Yeah, that's very, very true. Mm. I mean, you've got to be pretty passionate if you're going to be jumping into wetlands. (laughs) Thank you so much, Kate. No worries. My pleasure.